Uh, as we come to God's Word, would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer this morning. Um, I want to tell you something before we do this. I'm so, it is a great privilege for me to be here with you this morning. It is a privilege. I know your pastors. I love your pastors. I want to tell you, I pray regularly for them and for this church. Um, I'm so thankful for the input Godwin, Andrew, and more recently even in uh, in a conference that, uh, in the Simeon Trust Conference that Ryan uh, had in, in putting in my life. And so I am I'm immensely thankful for them and their leadership of the church and I would just ask you to absolutely join me on an ongoing basis, not right now, just pray for your pastors, okay? Pray for the elders and the elders of this church who want to lead you in, in Christ. Hopefully you have your Bibles open to Matthew 6 where we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, if there is one thing that we can all agree on as believers in this world and even with unbelievers in this world, Humans are needy. Humans are needy. Now, the difference between believers and unbelievers in that is for us, neediness, and I'm going to put a case to you this morning that neediness is a good thing. Fragility is a good thing. Okay? For Christians, it's a good thing. The world hates neediness. The world doesn't want to be needy. Thinks it's a bad thing. It's so much better to be self-reliant and self-sufficient. You're feeling needy, you're feeling fragile, get that out of the road as quickly as you can possibly get it out of the road. You need to be self-sufficient and self-reliant. Um, in fact, one uh, of America's most famous psychologists was a guy by the name of Abraham Maslow. Perhaps you've heard of Maslow's Triangle, um, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And Maslow talked about needs, right? Maslow defined human needs in levels from the most basic fundamental needs, physical needs, right? Physiological needs, physical life. And it was a triangle started with this base fundamental needs and then it went up to its pinnacle. And so living a satisfying and purposeful life. Uh, and he started with physiological needs such as food, water, shelter, moves through safety, um, security to, to, as you go up the triangle, to love, belonging, self-esteem, eventually to self-actualization and even transcendence. Now, I suggest that Maslow's understanding of human needs never actually reaches satisfaction. Uh, it's a constant working and, honestly, it's a trial and toil for human glory. Uh, in our attempts to uh, appear holy, to want to show how, how much we've got it together, we can be trying to work and live in the, in the Maslow hierarchy. Um, instead of really enjoying the glory of God. I want to look at how Jesus thinks about this. And, he, and, and this is the Sermon on the Mount we're talking to. Jesus has his disciples gathered around him. He's preaching. And 
This particular section starts in verse 1. Just look at Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware. Uh, Drew read it before. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your heaven, from your Father who is in heaven. Seeking your own glory from others only stops you from being able to enjoy God's glory, doesn't it? Um, it's quite amazing. Now, I know you've heard the Lord's Prayer because that's where we're going this morning, verses 9 through to 13. I know you've heard it a thousand times. Maybe some of you haven't, but most of you have heard it so often. You've recited it. I used to walk into uh, a classroom as a kid in primary school every morning. I remember reciting the Lord's Prayer every morning, right? It's not meant for just recitation. It doesn't just mean anything in, in just straight-out recitation, particularly with unbelievers, you know. What are they, what, why force them to do that? Apart from the fact that there's some good truth in it. Um, you've heard it. Many of us have heard it preached and, and, hey, there's a particular structure to prayer. And so you must pray with these. You start here and then you go 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 here. You know that. Yeah, there are two truths to this. I want to put to you two, just two, just two. When we go through the Lord's Prayer, we're going to just divide it in two because I think there's just a natural division here. Here it is. God has all the glory and you have all the need. That's it. Uh, Let me put it to you in the proposition I want to put to you today. We have all the needs and none of the glory, but we pray to a God who has all the glory and no needs. That's the Lord's Prayer. That's what it says to us. Now, let let me put it in context. And and you heard some of the context this morning because Drew was reading uh, from the first part of Matthew 6, and as you read through the first part of Matthew 6, you just noticed he's talking about hypocrites in synagogues who who are giving, they're giving their tithes and offerings, right? And they're giving in a way that everybody can see. Look at me. Look at me. And Jesus says, listen, don't get your reward from men. Uh, Your Father in heaven sees what you do. The hypocrites pray so... Everyone, they pray, goes to prayer. They pray so everyone can hear them. No, don't do that. Your father sees and hears in secret. And then, you know, he he makes a statement about Gentiles for a specific reason. We'll go there in a second. But then there's the Lord's Prayer. And then sandwiching the Lord's Prayer is another one. There's these guys that are fasting. And they're fasting in a way that they put on their dust and ashes and they wear the old clothes and everything. And everybody's got to see that I'm fasting because I'm so holy and pious. As you can see, I don't fast very much. (laughs) I'm not trying to pull that off this morning. In fact, I was worried because there's like these gaps around this ball pit. We've got a ball pit that covers all of me. It feels really, really good. <laughs> but in between this man seeking their own glory, right, we've got this Lord's Prayer. It's just it's the meat in the sandwich. Notice it. Notice it where it is. 
And so look at what Jesus says to his disciples as he approaches this. He's talking about what they see in their Jewish context, but then he uses he uses a, 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 an introduction about Gentiles too as he comes into prayer. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, as the pagans do, for they think that they will be heard for their many works. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pagans in the first century had lots and lots of gods. Well, everybody has around us has lots and lots of gods. We've got to be wary of it, don't we? Um, but lots and lots of gods that they would pray to, hoping that one would hear them. Maybe their, the loudness of their voice, maybe their rhetoric, maybe their many words might just have one say, oh, yeah, I, I, I get that. I'll give them something. Don't be like that. Why? Because you're not pagans. You're not Gentiles. You actually do have the one true living God. He's different to all of them. You don't put a little piece of wood on a shelf, right? He's, he's different to all of them. What's different about him? He doesn't need your many words. He doesn't need your eloquence. He can hear you because he's alive. He doesn't need your incredible introductions. The one true living God of the world is so much more interested in your heart. And you might say, well, hang on, if he already knows what I'm going to say before I say it, if he already knows well, I'm going to, what, what's the point of prayer? Why pray at all? I want you to listen to this incredible uh, quote from A.W. Pink. I love this quote. It's, he says, prayer is appointed for the furnishing of God with, uh, sorry, prayer is not appointed for the furnishing of God with the knowledge of what we need. But it is designed as a confession to him of our sense of the need. In this, as in everything, God's thoughts are not as ours. God requires that his gifts should be sought for. He desires, He designs to be honoured by our asking just as he is to be thanked by us after he has bestowed his blessing. Prayer is about coming to God who knows everything to delight in him, to trust in him for everything. And as you come to him, I think what Jesus is saying to the disciples, remind yourself who he is. He's not a false god. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. And so just listen to the words from verses 9 to 13. Just listen to the words that he says. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Notice that Jesus then he says, pray like this, right? Pray then like this. Um, he's not saying what you pray. He's saying how you pray. Okay, uh, I think we can get really stuck up on reciting, 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 and it's not what you pray, it's how you pray. This is how you should pray. Uh, the Greek uh, original language word used here is hutos. It means in this manner or in this way. Pray in this way. This is the manner in which you pray. So Jesus, 
isn't really teaching us what to say is if we recite this, you know, the Roman Catholic Church has the Our Father and you recite the Our Father. That, that, that's not what this is about. So uh, this is our approach to God, how we should pray. And let me tell you, when you understand how Jesus is telling us you pray, to pray, I want to also put it to you, I think it is telling us how to live. We pray how we should live. And so we need a right understanding of this, and, and if we do, we'll get a right understanding of life. When we embrace who God is and who we are. And who is God? Well, let's look at this, just this first half of it now. God has all the glory. This, this is just so evident in this prayer. Just look at it. Keep in mind that this is a, a, a prayer for his disciples, for authentic disciples. Look at the two words of this prayer, our Father, our Father, okay? There's a, a plural there, isn't there? Our Father. Uh, and and that, who is that plural? Who is that our? Well, the our is those who are in Christ. It's his disciples. That's who he's preaching to. We should immediately, I think, be taken by the fact that in Christ, those who are in Christ can come and approach the throne of God with boldness and full of assurance and call him Father. Uh, because we're adopted into God's family. We're adopted. We're adopted sons. Even if you're a daughter, you're a son. Full inheritance, everything. And so that only happens through the cross of Christ, doesn't it? You're only adopted into God's family through the cross of Christ. But so many people want to say that he's their father. And, and that's a good talking point. Let's talk about it. But there's only one way that God is your father. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5 when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And it's only through faith in Christ, right, that we can experience any of that sub sonship because Jesus appeased us. We were completely separated from God. He was not our father, but through faith in him who has appeased the wrath of God. By the way, you sang that song wrong. It is not the wrath of God. It is the wrath of God, okay? And he appeased the wrath of God, fully paid for us, but not just a ticket to heaven to bring us into his family to live as sons and daughters of Christ. Of the Father, this is this is amazing, and so uh, it, it, in Romans eight fifteen, we we have that wonderful passage that we know, talking to those who are believers who are walking the Spirit, and we have received the Spirit of adoption of sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And no doubt you've heard sermons on Abba, Father, and that this is like an intimate, intimate way of talking about God as our Father. He's intimately our Father. But let me tell you, he is not any father. Some people like to use the word daddy. I, I, I think that is saying that he's just like any father. He's not any father, right? He's not like any father. You can't just say our Father without then saying the words, who is in heaven. You can't say Father in that intimacy and lose reverence. Now, I know the words of the Lord's Prayer are so familiar to us and, and we just can whip it out. Our, our Father who is in heaven, 
and we, we can whip it out, you know, almost as if it's just an address. Well, that's where he is, right? Our Father who is in heaven. That's his address. Um, but it's so much more. We're not just talking about an address. We're, we're talking about heaven. When you hear that word heaven, that God is in heaven, what it is saying is it is pointing out his exaltation. It's pointing out his power. It's pointing out his authority. I want to give you a couple of examples of this from Scripture. Just, um, just look at this with me. First Kings chapter eight, verse twenty-seven to thirty. In First Kings chapter eight, verse twenty-seven to thirty, we we have Solomon coming to the dedication of the temple, this grand, beautiful building in all of its glory in the time of Solomon, and, and it's being dedicated, and this is, this is God's house, and yet he still prays. Listen to how he prays. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place which you have said my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. In the words of Isaiah about the, the futility of thinking, that you can actually worship a God that you make and stick it on a shelf in a temple. Futility of thought. Wooden carvings, silver mouldings. And in Isaiah chapter 66, from verse 1, Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord God through Isaiah, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my throne. Footstool. What is this house that you would build for me? And what is this place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things come to be, declares the Lord. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God is greater than anything. He is not just in heaven as an address. He is in heaven as the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the great authority over everything. He is the creator of everything. He has all power over everything. He is higher. He is stronger. He is wiser, holier, bigger, and better than anything that you and I can imagine. He's God. And let me say this, it is not until, please, brothers and sisters, hear me on this, it is not until you get a sense of the absolute transcendence of the one true living God that you can know how wonderful it is that you can come to him in the Lord Jesus Christ and say, our Father. So therefore, Jesus says, this is what you do with this. Hallowed be your name. 
hallowed. I don't know if you know what hallowed is. It's actually the verb form of holy. Holied be your name. And and, and notice, by the way, it's your name and your, because we use your for both plural and singular, don't we, in English? Kind of doesn't do it, all right? Unless it's Kentucky English and then it's y'all, okay? And there is a difference. Well, actually, y'all is still singular in Kentucky. You have to go to all y'all to be plural, right? But this is singular. It is only God's name that is holy. Only. And and see, his, the, the reference to the plural in this prayer is us, and it's only ever dependency. So we need bread. We need forgiveness. The reference to the singular in this is his name is holy, and say, hallowed be your name. And by the way, um, the the... You know, the, the translation, if we did a really wooden, as correct translation we could possibly do, I suppose it would be something more like, your name is to be treated as holy, right? Because we're not telling God his name is holy. He, I think he knows, doesn't he? We don't know, we don't need, to, he doesn't need us to tell him he's holy. He is holy. We, he needs us to treat his name the way it should be treated. Your name is to be holied, hallowed. Because God has all the glory and it's in his name. And so the acknowledgement of God's name sets the expectation for all life before it. And then we see it in verse 10, shows that it's in his kingdom. It's in his name and then it's in his kingdom. In Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so before Jesus came as as the Messiah, there was this expectation of the kingdom. The the Jews were expecting the kingdom. They had this prayer that they would often pray. It was called the Kaddish. And uh, they would pray that there would be God's kingdom would come actually and break into this world. That was their prayer. I want you to hear some of their prayer because it actually sounds a bit like the Lord's Prayer. Uh, It goes like this, exalted and hallowed be his great name in all the world which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the house, whole house of Israel, speedily and soon. And to this I say, amen. That's a pretty good prayer, I thought, for people expecting the Messiah. There was an expectation that with the imminent coming of the Messiah, that God's kingdom would come and be on earth. Now, actually, this is really, we're in Matthew's gospel this morning in the Lord's Prayer, and this really is the subject matter of the whole of Matthew's gospel. And so in the preparation of Jesus' ministry, we have John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 4, Jesus starts preaching and he preaches, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It can even be translated, it's here. It's now here. Jesus echoed that. And so your kingdom come is now the prayer for the disciples. There's an aspect of this. Well, how, do, how does this happen? Where do we see this fulfillment? And I would say to you that there is an, there is an aspect of this which we already see in fulfillment in Christ himself. Jesus, in coming to this earth and living among us, has shown us the glorious nature of God's kingdom in himself, has he not? 
And so we first of all desire to see this in the very person of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to suggest to you that Jesus uses very specific terms here. He says, we need to live this as as it is in heaven, which we also see in Jesus Christ. Does Jesus perfectly carry out the will of the Father? Yes. You want to see how the kingdom is to be lived as it is in heaven? Look at Jesus. He'll show you. He'll show you. But there's this this word in here, carried out as, as it is in heaven. This means in the same way that it's done in heaven. Let me ask you a question. Is there anything other than perfect character and moral holiness in heaven? No. Let, let me ask, is, if, if God is to say something in heaven, is, is there anything other than an, an absolute obedience in carrying out his will? No. It's just true and absolute obedience. All in heaven are totally in the perfect unity carrying out the will of God. And so, can you imagine even how that is? Just imagine how that is. I'm saying, yeah, look at Jesus to see it. If you are in Christ, one day you won't have to imagine. One day you will be absolutely living it. You'll be absolutely living it. So we see it in two ways. We see it in the actual person of Jesus Christ and we're going to see it one day in the consummation of all things when everything is perfected and all things are lived out perfectly in obedience and, and glory to God. You see it two ways. But, but outside of that, outside of those two perfect realities, does God not still call us to the highest calling? Would he be God if he called us to anything less? He calls us to this highest calling. Live out your life in the will of God as it is in heaven. We say, well, what do we do with this? Because the only way I can see us doing that is, I mean, we we can do it in Christ and he gives us the ability and we need to grow in the spirit as we are doing this. But you know what? I am going to see that I am going to fail. I'm going to fail even at that. But that's what I love about this prayer because if, we, if you acknowledge that, unless you're completely just oblivious to it, like the examples that are around the Lord's Prayer, well, we don't care about that. We just want our glory anyway, right? We want people to see us anyway. But if we are, I really want to live out your kingdom. I really want to, to obey you in your kingdom, Christ, but I constantly fail. And then, and then it's, Jesus is so precious he's my precious savior who knows me because he then for the rest of the prayer says i know that you have all the need i know you can't do it at least not without me we have all the need second half of this prayer focuses on what our real needs are and i could i could break them down into just two categories physical and spiritual if you look at them physical and spiritual physical 9 and 10 spiritual 11 to 13 notice by the way that jesus doesn't say oh so, sorry i've got to listen to everybody else in the world there's also a psychological health and there's also an emotional health i need to throw that in here i need to throw no no physical spiritual neediness 
in these areas help us to understand that we can be less concerned about our glory seeking and more concerned about the need for our need for God, our reliance on God, our dependence on God. So again, I love the way that A.W. Pink has stated this because he says, prayer is not so much an act as it is an attitude, an attitude of dependency, dependency upon God. I've got to ask you, I'm just going to look at you in the eye right now and ask you, is that a good thing to be dependent on God? It is. It's a good thing. So physical, give us this day our daily bread, verse 11. When we read this, you know, sometimes that's even hard for us because we live in this modern world, modern conventions. We have a sick day and we get sick pay, right? The disciples at Jesus' feet didn't have workers' compensation or sick pay. They didn't work that day. They didn't probably eat that day. But we have all of these things, and and so we can just easily overlook that, overlook the fact that this prayer is really stating in this that every single thing that we need for daily life comes from who? God. We rely on him for food, for water, for shelter, for health. And, And when we say that, oh, yeah, but I work for those things. I do those things. I Look at what I achieved so that I could provide these things. And, and then God says, who gave you that ability in the first place? And Paul writes it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What have you that you have not received? Okay, yeah, we do have physiological needs. We see this all through the Scriptures. Proverbs 30, verse 8. The last part of it says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. And the writer of the Proverbs knows that he needs God even in the basic needs of his life. And so the question of this morning that I'm continually putting to you, brothers and sisters, I'm continually putting to you is, do we show this, show this type of beautiful neediness toward God in our life and in our prayer life? Do we have this? Or do you walk around looking at others, seeing fragility as some sort of human, other human weakness? Of course it's human weakness. We're all weak. We're all weak. But that's beauty of it because it brings us to total reliance on God for everything. And so, you know what? I would say this to you. A great definition of prayerlessness is simply just self-reliance. Self-reliance. Now, notice the last half of this prayer. More time is now given on spiritual needs than physical. More, so much more on spiritual needs than, than physical need. And, and I'm pretty sure here when I see this, because Jesus is showing us what the most important basic thing actually is in the time that he's giving it in this text here. And, and so... Uh, through Matthew. And so I want to put it to you that I believe as I see this here that Jesus does not agree with Maslow on the hierarchy of human needs. Not not once does he pray for our self-esteem or ego, sense of belonging, getting love, respect from others, or finding ourselves, self-actualization, or or if totally not transcendence, there's only one who's transcendent. 
But what he's saying is you need God. And Jesus spends the rest of this time saying, in, in saying that, wow, I, I'll tell you what I do need. I need forgiveness. My greatest need. That's my greatest. Do you realize that's your greatest need? Forgiveness is your greatest need. That's your greatest need. We're sinners. We've sinned against this transcendent God of the universe. And we think our greatest need is food and shelter. Listen, our greatest need is forgiveness. If I die of starvation, my greatest need is still forgiveness. Jesus spends the rest of his time saying, you know, you need to be sincere about forgiveness because you desperately need it as sinners. And then in, in that sincerity, you need to go on living holy lives in the sincerity of forgiveness. Go in living those holy lives, keeping from temptation. Look at 12 and 13. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I don't know if it's strange to you that Matthew uses the word debt because it's hardly used in the New Testament. It's used here in one other place. Paul uses it. And when Paul uses it, he uses it in reference to sin. Sin is a debt. And what are you and I used to doing with debts? What do we do with debts? We pay them off, don't we? I hope you pay them off. You get in trouble when you don't. You can't pay off that debt. Jesus is talking about a debt you cannot pay off. The only hope is if it's paid for us by someone who doesn't have the debt, and that is Jesus Christ. He's done it. If you try to pay it off yourself, you will be paying it off for eternity. That's why the Bible tells us that hell is an eternal, is an eternal punishment. It's an eternal debt that we have. You never pay off. But Jesus has paid it off. And so it needs to be forgiven. We can't pay it off. And he says, forgive us our debts. And then if you've been forgiven a debt that you can never pay off, how can you sincerely know that you've truly had that debt forgiven well, let me tell you, there's some relief in you about that debt to the degree that there's no other debt that is comparable to that debt. So whatever it does to you, you can forgive others. Isn't that glorious? And then lastly, Jesus says, listen, we need God in this and to walk in that forgiveness. Because without God, you are simply going to fall away. Are we not? Left to our own devices? Unless God, but God, right? Um, Jesus said to us that we should not be led into temptation, which is kind of a little difficult for us to see because we're praying to the Father and we say, why would the Father lead us into temptation? I mean, God does not tempt us to sin and he does not sin himself. We get that from James 1. So why do we have these words here, but um, but the end of that sentence, I think, gives us uh, the understanding of this. So, so in the second phrase, we hear that we desire that Jesus, uh, that the Father keeps us from the from evil, and I think in the original language, it's more evil one from the evil one. 
Where I think we get a good example of how to understand this is Jesus' prayer for Peter at uh, the time just before the cross. So, uh, you know, I think what Jesus is saying that he prays that our faith wouldn't be, we wouldn't abandon our faith, that we'd be kept in the faith, kept in God, that Satan would not sift us. Listen to what he said to to Peter, Luke 22, verse 31 to 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Does he know that Peter is going to fall in the temptation to deny Christ? Yeah. But does Peter's faith totally fail? No. Who keeps him? God. He comes, he's reconciled. The beautiful scene in John, he's walking along the beach with Jesus. And then he goes into this amazing ministry. And so Peter did fall, but not waver from faith. And I think that's what we're continually relying on God for. And, and it shows repentance and perseverance in the faith. So we pray for our everyday battle. And it must be a battle, brothers and sisters. It's not an everyday giving in, okay? It's an everyday battle. Knowing only God can keep us from being sifted. Only God can do that. So bottom line, we desperately need God in this world if we are going to persevere in faith in a life that can be called a, a spiritual war. Let me come to a finish here. I love this prayer. Like everybody, every now and again, I find myself reciting this prayer. But I keep reminding myself, that's not the reason for this prayer. Look at it. Think about it. How do I approach prayer? It's the same way as I must approach life. And it helps me realize my fragility. And I'm thankful for it. My neediness in life. Because neediness is okay. Brothers and sisters, it's okay. Fragility is okay. Neediness is okay. Can you say it with me? Neediness is okay. I'm sure there are a good number of people in this world that fit, with this room, right, that, that feel that neediness and, and fragility. And I'm saying to you, grab on to what is helping you to, causing you to put all of your dependence on God. Grab onto that. That's a good thing. Grab onto that. It's causing you to put all of your dependence on God. You know, I'm actually not worried about those people. I'll tell you the people in this room I'm worried about. It's those of you who are sitting here thinking, my life is going good, I'm pretty self-focused and I'm self-confident, I've got self-reliance and, and everything is working out for me and everything is good and I don't need stuff. I'm speaking to you, you're the problem this morning. I'm concerned that you are not fragile and needy. And you might be looking at others as, as though, look, at I've got it going when they don't. Listen, if you're not fragile and needy, looking under God to sustain your every breath and waking moment in everything that you do, you are not the one in the right place. You can strive all your life trying to reach the pinnacle of Maslow's triangle, never reaching it. Or you can be content right now in your life and prayer, knowing that needy disciples have a glorious Father, and this is who we come to. We come to one who truly has no needs.
You don't pray to a needy God. We have all the needs and none of the glory, but we pray to a God who has all the glory and none of the needs. Let me pray. Lord, we just want to pray those two things this morning. We want to come to you who has no need. Our God who has all the glory, hallowed be your name. Let us treat you as holy and and glorified in every way. Lord, let us come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Needy upon you for every waking moment, for every part of our life, physical and spiritual. And we pray this in the name of our King of kings and Lord of lords, our King Jesus. Amen.